All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pursuit of Property podcast. I'm here with my fellow co-host, Scott Farrow. And we've done one book episode so far. It was when we talked about partnerships and Mm -hmm. we talked about our lessons learned from Rocket Fuel. Um, We got a lot of great feedback on that episode. So Scott and I wanted to do another kind of book review, summary, outline, lessons learned kind of thing for another book. Um, One that I think is one of the most important books we've ever read, um, applicable to real estate, life, whatever business you're in, um, which is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And the book's right here in the description. We're going to be putting in the Amazon link and everything like that. But we just kind of wanted to sit down and talk about the book. So let's kind of just jump into it. When we talk about books that we recommend uh, all the time, this is one of the top ones. We refer to Never Split the Difference as one of our best negotiation uh, guides. The real thing here is that Chris Voss was actually a hostage negotiator for the FBI. And so a lot of what he was negotiating was more life and death. So some of the examples can be very extreme and entertaining to listen to. In uh, in practice, this stuff can all be used at your home life, in your work life, everywhere. So we found it really helpful. We've personally seen uh, our own negotiation confidence go up. And also, I feel like we've seen monetary um, success. Our close ratios went up, everything like that, after reading the book and reviewing. That's what I was going to say, because I know, I think you and Jason. Jason read it around the same time. And you tell everybody when you recommend the book, what happened? Well, so I'm not going to speak for Jason, but I'm, I'm 90% sure that this happened too. But Jason and I both read it around the same time. And after I read this book, all of a sudden, I started closing deals so much more often. Frequency went up. Now, there's a lot of things that add to that, right? Follow-up plays a really big part. Uh, interpersonal communication, uh, you know, experience. But I think for me, I started getting better deals at deeper discounts because of my understanding of this book and constant review. And we talk about it in our episode about your first appointment. Yeah. I still, every time I go to an appointment, try to listen to one of these chapters on audio when I'm driving to the appointment, just as a good refresher, just because a lot of these things are really uncomfortable when you first start, but they're natural psyche uh, moves. And so knowing how to use them correctly, getting your timing right, practicing in the car, these are all things that really help. uh, And they've helped me. So we wanted to talk about it today uh, when it comes to the art of uh, persuasion and negotiation. Perfect. So let's talk about how you talk to people, whether you're negotiating everyday life. Obviously, in sales, you want to, you know, there's a way to do it with your mannerisms, your posture, your tone Mm -hmm. of voice, X, Y, Z. So let's talk about that first. In in the book, it kind of talks about kind of three main voices and tone of voice specifically depending on what kind of situation you're right right and i know the default voice which i find ourselves doing when we're following up with leads or following up with people on our soi or we typically talk like it too when we're talking to anybody yeah absolutely which is just kind of the the they call it the playful positive voice right your kind of default voice um you come across very friendly and calm not too overbearing not too serious, um, and that should be the default voice. Yeah, your pace, right? your pace is usually fairly fairly fast, and uh, your tonal inflections are usually a little bit more inflected and things like that. It, I mean, it's a subconscious thing, but in sales, we people always refer to it as the salesperson voice. Yeah, and it is. You know, it's it's a little bit played up, but 
they talk in the book about making sure you try to make sure uh, you keep you keep a rein on how much you play that up. People get uncomfortable sometimes when you overemphasize things. A hundred percent. And we'll jump into this section a little bit later in the podcast, talking about kind of matching uh, the tonality right. and um, the personality of the other person you're talking to. But there's another voice, and the book refers to it as the late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> That's kind of the voice that we we use on the podcast. Yeah. So it, it's a little more calm. It's slower. Uh, your goal is to create a feeling of trust with the other person you're talking to. Yeah. So you're slowing down. You're talking more, you know, kind of like this, exactly like you were talking about in the podcast voice. Right. The idea with the FM DJ voice is that by slowing things down, people are very uncomfortable in negotiation. And so this is a way of continuing to help calm them. They feel more at ease. When you're talking in a playful voice, you can sound anxious or you can cause anxiety. And really what comes here is this is the voice that you use to continue to develop authority and rapport. So these are the really, you know, the playful voice. This is what you're going to be talking about most of the time. And this is how you're really going to communicate with people when you're not in the middle of a negotiation. Yeah. And then when you get into <laughs> the negotiation, you can kind of slide down a little bit in your octave. And then you start talking in that FMDJ radio voice. The example I can think of, at least in our industry, <clears throat> is, for example, let's say going on an appointment, right? And you're meeting the seller possibly in person for the first time in most cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they walk up, you're meeting them. Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, how are you? It's great to meet you in person. Um, you know, catch me up to speed on the property. So X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. Then you get right. into the negotiation negotiations and it's like, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, I know you caught me up to speed on everything. You know, after looking at all this, you know, using a line, what, what's the lowest price you would consider? And the tone inflection just changes depending on the situation. Right. And a lot, I think they talk about the tonality inflection is always down. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, you, you don't want to make it sound like it's a question. You, you pose a question, but then you say it almost like an authority. So, if we were to pay for blah, 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 and you run through your whole spiel, yeah. what would be the lowest price you would consider? And just like that, you're not coming across like, you know, what What would the lowest price you would consider be? The differences right. there just convey a lot different. The, so the last one is yep. the worst voice. <laughs> a lot of people based off TV think this is like the only way you can negotiate. It's yeah. like, the, like the strict, you know, you got to do it or what else, right? And it's called the assertive voice. Essentially, you are overbearing, you're loud, uh, you know, you're direct, you sound aggressive. It works for very few things. They talk in sections about, uh, you know, expressing anger. There's times where that can actually help you. Most of the time it hurts you. Yeah. I know an example, at least Chris uses in the book, is a mistake he made when he used the assertive voice instead of the late night you know, FM DJ voice. And it created exactly that. He uses one of his real life examples. It created pushback from the, from the person, the bad guy that they were negotiating with. Right. And you can see in the book, he was like, Oh shit, you know, this is a mistake. You know, mm -hmm. we've got to come in and fix this. Cause usually it, it breaks either any rapport that you've built up to that point, And the person on the other end is going to be like, Oh no, right. No, we're right. not going <laughs> to, and just pushes them back. Exactly. And so the three voices, everybody has like a default voice that they refer to. Like 
that they just naturally talk in. Most people are the positive voice. Mm -hmm. So you can't control what your default voice is. You just need to be actively aware of how you're talking um, because we all know that it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. 100%. Let's go into the more important uh, section. Now that we understand a little bit about tonal inflections, uh, the book's biggest tip about talking to people is to listen. That seems to be the big takeaway. And not just listening, but a term that they say is active listening. So we can be, it, take the two of us, for example, we're mm-hmm. actively listening to what each other are saying and building upon it or, right. you know, mentioning or noting something that the other person said. You can listen, but not really be listening to. Right. And the other person is going to catch up on that if you're not really listening or paying attention to what they're saying. And you don't want to think about what you're going to say next, because then you're going to miss the things that come through that aren't, you know, the more subliminal subtext, right? Yeah. They talk about, you know, what people say and then what they mean being different. You need to negotiate on what they mean, uh, you know, on that sub layer. Yeah. So that's a big part of the whole book. And whether you're a seller in a distressed situation needing to sell a property or it's a family member or a friend going through xyz and you know come to you for advice or help just like the book says and what we know is true is on a baseline level humans just want to be accepted and understood that's so huge. that's the big part about active listening is making the other person feel understood feel appreciated and so that's the biggest thing about active listening is building that to make sure the other side feels that way. So then it, it kind of covers, uh, we're talking about this really in the context of like a book review, but keep in mind that these are all things that we actively implement. Yeah. Um, the, the way to keep people talking and be able to listen better is, uh, a technique called calibrated questions. It's essentially the reporter questions of who, what, when, where, why, but you take out who because that's an easy answer. When, that's another easy answer. They're just, they give you a piece of information and then they're done. And then why, because why can be a very particular word. We'll talk about it. But really you ask what and how questions to get people to talk more. So instead of asking like, why why are you selling right now? You might ask what's, get, or what's uh, incentivizing you to sell right now, right? So you're asking questions that are open-ended and then... You just let that go. You ask the question, you shut up, and you just listen to what they say, and you just try to listen and hear for any information that they give you. Negotiation's all fact-finding. And that does a couple things, right? One, it it shows, you know, it gives the other person, you should not be talking the majority of the time on, on these calls, right? One, it buys you time. It puts you puts yourself in a position to be an active listener and listen to the other person. Two, it lets you, as a result... Uh, make the other person feel more understood. They're, they're getting to tell you, you know, the whole spiel A to Z about the property, right? Making them feel welcomed and understood. Um, and exactly like you were saying, kind of the open-ended questions that do not have a direct answer, make it not so, you know, cutthroat and, uh, you know, one-word answers from the other person or X, Y, Z, right? Right. And so you're able to start doing a lot of fact-finding that way. Now, tell me this. When you ask that question and you listen, you don't want to be like an investigator, right? I'm not, you don't want to be the guy that's sitting there drilling you with questions. So what happens, say you ask me a question and I, I feed you back an answer like it's in pretty good shape, but you know, it needs some work because the tenants did some damage. What do you do next? 
the tenants did some damage. So you repeat back the last few words, the most influential words, and that's called mirroring. Which, th- this whole book is filled with freaking great things from the first page to the last page. But mirroring, I think, especially is huge, especially in our industry when you're talking to sellers on the phone. It's It feels unnatural when you start, but <laughs> it's probably, once you use it, the most powerful tool that we use to continue to to continue to fact find when people don't want to talk, especially the aggressive, assertive guys yeah. who will shut you down. <laughs> they respond very well to uh, mirroring and asking, you know, the last three words, the last one word. Yeah. And the very first thing we have right here, which relates back to what we were just talking about, when you repeat something to what somebody just said, it shows that you're actively listening and that you're intrigued or interested in what they just said. Right. So like you were saying, you know, um, you know, tennis did, did some damage. The tennis did some damage. You're asking because you want to know more. Yeah. And that you do inflect as a question. So in a situation where you're, you're trying to fact find and you're talking to a seller, it's key that you start by asking them a calibrated question in your FMDJ voice or in your playful voice and then listen to what they have to say. And then when they say something that maybe is a little vague or you would like a little more knowledge on, when they finish whatever they're talking about, you repeat back just a little bit. Oh, tenants did some damage. Leave it at that. You don't have to explain why you want to know. And then the silence encourages the seller to talk again. You got to shut up right after you do the mirroring. That's that's, that's key. huge. And yeah. so when you shut up, they start talking to you. And now you continue to listen and you continue to find out more. Maybe they uh, blew holes in the wall. Maybe there's a roof leak. Maybe uh, you know they did some kind of damage to a window. Now you're fi- finding out material facts that are going to help you in your negotiation. So let's build on that, right? So let's use that example, you know. So the tenants did some damage. They go yeah. in, they broke the window. They broke the window and, you know, their kid drew crayon all over the wall. And honestly, I haven't done anything in the house in probably 10 years. So, you know, I would expect that there's some work that needs to be done. You know, it sounds like this property has kind of been a little bit problematic for you. I wouldn't say it's super problematic. You know, they haven't asked me for too much. I knew that this was coming down the down the pike at some point when I had to sell. You know, and I just don't want to have to put the money into the house. Don't want to put the money into the house? Yeah, I don't want to have to come up with the cash. You know, I I don't really have the money right now. And honestly, I'm retired. I don't want to have to, you know, deal with the headaches. I'd I'd rather just get out of the business. So it seems like you just want to kind of cash out and use that money in retirement, huh? See, and so Cade's already moving on to the next key thing. When you say something like, it seems like you want to... It looks like you want to. It sounds like you want to. What you're doing is you're labeling pain. Because sometimes sellers don't understand why they hate their situation so much. And you're guiding them to understand their situation. The backfall is that if you say, it seems like you hate being a landlord. He goes, I don't hate being a landlord. You didn't say you were. It just, when I was listening, this is what I think it I heard. Yeah. And so you're you're... <clears throat> providing that you're listening. Yeah. And like you were saying, the big part is some of these, when you're talking to somebody, they may not even know what they're feeling and what they're thinking when they have an outside person, not in an aggressive way, kind of in, in a guy, you're kind of like a guide, you're guiding the conversation. Mm-hmm. It that Some people might see it as manipulating the conversation, but really you're just kind of guiding 
the conversation. You're asking the questions and you're letting the other person talk, right? Right. That not only is reaffirming, it makes the other person feel accepted and understood, especially if you hit the nail on the head. It sounds like you kind of just want to cash out and use the money in retirement. The other guy goes, yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, that, exactly. That's right. Exactly. It makes them feel understood and accepted. So labeling is the process of helping them understand their feelings. So you have uh, calibrated questions to fact find. You have mirroring to continue to fact find. Then you have calibrated qu- or you have labeling mm-hmm. to start kind of, you know, touching on that subliminal emotional level because humans are obviously emotional beings. And so now that you have some of these facts, you're starting to see, okay, I'm reading your body language, your tone of voice. I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm understanding what you mean by it. Now I'm starting to understand your motivation. And if I can show you that I understand your motivation, that is an important step to being able to be the person that actually provides a solution. You want to work with somebody who understands you. Yeah. And just like mirroring, after you place that label, again, it's important and can make or break the conversation for you to shut up and listen. Yes. Do your do your short thing. Do your label. Do your mirror. Then shut up and listen. Let the yes. other person talk. That's going to be something that continually comes up. If you are somebody like myself who I know that I come from a more assertive position, when somebody's quiet, I feel the need to fill the silence because I feel like it's you're giving me an opportunity to talk. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. You need to think to yourself, Listen, shut up, ask a question. And I struggle with this constantly. It's probably one of my biggest issues in negotiation is I talk too much after asking a question. Well, and I want to share an example. This was uh, earlier this week or later last week. We were sitting in the office and you were calling up uh, a lead to follow up with a, a guy you had met out at his house to make an offer and everything. And I remember you asking... Uh, it was either a calibrated question. It was one of I these asked, things. What is, uh, well, <clears throat> I hear you saying that you won't take my price. If I were to pay for everything, handle all the as is sale and make this as easy as possible for you, what would be the lowest price you'd even consider? You shut up and listen. And I kid you not, everybody on here, it was at least 20 to 30 seconds of silence. And like, I, like I, I put my silence. phone on mute. You put it on mute and we were like, dude, this is perfect. And, I kid you not, 20 or 30 seconds of just dead silence. And then he said, I don't know. That's not the right answer. I I don't know is probably worse. It is worse than yes or no. Yeah. And then I had to keep pushing to try to figure out what was going on that made him say, I don't know, instead of a price. But still better than trying to you know, save yourself and scramble the conversation and try to say something possibly stupid in those 20 or 30 seconds. Right. Right. And I had, he's somebody who I think hmm. too comes from more of uh he's, he needs to know all the details before he moves forward. So yeah. he's thinking, and I know his, his personality type requires some silence to think. He can't hear himself when I'm talking. So that was important. So, so far we've built on three things or four things, active listening, calibrated questions, mirroring, labeling. Yep. So the next, the next most important thing is what makes this book somewhat controversial. Yeah. And that's the no questions. Now, we use a variation of this um, almost, you know, every time when we, at least when I call somebody and I, you know, instead of saying, is now a good time? 
I ask, did I catch you at a bad time? Because people inherently feel more in a position of power when they say no as opposed to yes. So if I'm on the phone, think before we move forward on that. Yeah. Just to give an example of why that's something that we've we've found, or the, uh, an example of the book used to show the psyche part. Mm-hmm. Parents, when they get asked a question by their kids, will almost instinctively want to say no right at the start, and then they'll want to say yes after, right? So, like, can I go out with my friends tonight? No. Well, I'm just going to be out until you know five. This is what we're doing. But fine, yes, you can go. You know, you, it's a position of power. Right? Yeah. Continue. So. If you're calling somebody who, um, you know, a lead or somebody, you know, hey, is now a good time? Instinctively, everyone's going to be like, is now a good time? No, it's not a good time. You caught me at work or blah, blah, blah. I'm always busy. Yeah. You know, so it puts it it makes people feel more powerful. And that and that comes back to kind of you guiding the conversation and knowing that inherently as the best way to have the best conversation. The traditional negotiation school of thought is that you build up a reservoir of yeses and you get your momentum going through the yeses that when you go and you say, are you ready to sign the contract? They'll say yes. But the new thought process is that by saying, getting them to say no to things, we're ruling out those options and we're narrowing down the path. So uh, there's some, some things that you got to think about. One, people are scared of the word no. Mm-hmm. in sales because it means no sale but one of the good things that i learned from the book is tr- treating yourself or tricking yourself to think when you hear no think of it as these three things or five things i'm not ready yet i'm uncomfortable i don't understand i can't afford it or i need more time so when i ask you know are you thinking about selling right now no well that could mean i'm not ready yet i don't or i'm not comfortable i don't understand i can't afford it or I need more info. By doing that, I don't take that no as like, oh, I got to hang up the phone now. Now it's like, oh, okay. Well, when would you be interested in selling? Do you have a price in mind? Open-ended questions. And you start asking questions and listening. And then this is one of the really awesome techniques that I learned. I use this so often. It's mislabeling. When a conversation starts to get derailed, and they sometimes do, you have sellers that want to talk about anything but the deal. You can bring up a mislabeled thought. So say they you know that they're motivated to sell, they can't keep the house, and they won't take your price. They say that your price is too low. Okay. It seems like you're not really interested in selling right now. I love that one. That will immediately get them to defend. No, I need to sell it. I'm going to sell it, and I will sell it for the right price. The right price? And now you're back into the conversation. The key is understanding that when you mislabel, you have to mislabel almost the opposite because otherwise it looks like you weren't listening. Yeah. If you mislabel the exact opposite, you had to have been listening to understand what that was. And then when they come back, then you keep leading them back down the right path. Yeah. And one quick note before we move on to the next um, little section in here is it's important to recognize when you know when somebody says a counterfeit yes or uh when it's not really a truthful right. yes so a deceitful yes in our example you know hey you know mr and mrs seller i was actually calling you about one two three four main street uh you know i wanted to see if you would ever consider a cash offer is that something you 
would have considered or have considered. Yes. And someone goes, yeah, yeah, you know, I've considered it. You know, just just shoot me an offer. Call me back at this number. Hang up. That's not a right yes. That is the complete wrong yes because you should be able to recognize that, okay, this guy or gal was, you know, not it, they, they knew it was a spam call. They're, they get these calls all the freaking time. And, you know, right. they're doing it to uh, what we have here is they say yes to escape, to escape the conversation, not be stuck in there, giving you all the details and X, Y, Z. And so here's the other thing. Um, when you're getting yeses in the traditional sales model, a lot of the time you get counterfeit yeses just so that they can get out of the situation. You know, you're ready to sell. Yes. Are you ready to sign? Yes. Okay. Let me go to my office and send you a contract. Bang. Well, all of a sudden they're not, they're not signing and mm-hmm. they went and sold it to somebody else. Well, it's because they just told you yes, so that you would leave. Mm-hmm. What's important is the rule of threes as well. When you're working with somebody like that, you need to make sure that you continue to uh, re-ask questions in different ways because yes can be something that doesn't quite always work out. So keeping, keeping in mind, humans are instinctively really good at lying about yes. The more times that you can get them to say yes and lie about it, the more you'll catch it. Yeah. A hundred percent. So next let's talk about a word. Um, you know, it's a word that people misuse. People misuse all the time. People use, people use it all the time. And that word is the word fair. Now, what is so important or what is, what's the whole spiel with the word fair? I'll I'll summarize my understanding of it. I want your opinion too. My understanding is that inherently all humans social construct uh, wires their brain to want to be liked and part of the community. And fairness is something that they consider like of utmost importance. And if you insinuate that somebody is being unfair, it's one of the worst insults that you can do. But, Fair is also a word that could be extremely powerful if used correctly. What are your thoughts? I agree a hundred percent. The and let's talk about those those two polar opposites, right? One where it can be extremely damaging. Um, you know, if for example, let's say we were on a phone call or in negotiations negotiations with a seller. And they want 50,000 more than the Zillow estimate. Yeah. Right. And I mean, nine times out of 10, a seller is going to start their price high and it's down to the negotiation to get a good deal through all the other negotiation techniques. But if you're sitting there and right after they say they want 50 grand over the Zillow value and you go, yeah, you know, that kind of seems unfair. You know that that's not really realistic. Boom. Imagine, you just lost all your rapport. There's, there's Nobody's going to want to talk to you. Imagine being the, on the other end of the call and you're like, a stranger is, who is a stranger and what makes them think they can talk to me like that? Right. Boom. Lost. Here's another example. This one's a little bit more subtle that mm-hmm. you wouldn't normally think. If they say that they want 450, the decimus 400, and you offer them 300 and their house is thrashed, it would be very, very sloppy negotiation tactics to say, well, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, with all the repairs needed, I believe that 300 is a fair offer. You're inherently telling them that they are not fair, and it completely breaks down anything that you've done. 
it make and that's a great point it makes you're painting out the other person and you to be deceitful or to be like they're absurd or like that does the complete opposite of making them feel like you understood guys are on the same page exactly so let's talk about a good way to use fair yeah one of the best ways that you could use fair is to start the conversation talking about reputation because your reputation precedes you in all negotiations if you want to be a big investor you need to have a good reputation or else sellers won't work with you mm -hmm. if you're known for beating people up and getting the best <laughs> of people you're not going to be worked with you need to be known as the guy who comes up with fair deals and solves problems so a great way to start would be something like hey kate you know before we talk about you know the house and everything i just want you to know that if i do or say anything that you feel is unfair please let me know Absolutely. Will do. What you just did is gave them the illusion that that like they are now in more control because nobody's who's going to call you out for being unfair by making a low offer. It's not unfair. It's just unpleasant. Now, all of a sudden, you're setting up the reputation that I want to be fair. And you do. You're trying to come up with a win-win solution. The win-win solution does mean each person has to give and take. Absolutely. And Another good use would be kind of posing the question, you know, it, either the example I'm thinking of is, you know, maybe you're going through the spiel like, you know, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, you know, typically when I work um, with sellers like yourself, I pay all cash. I pay for all of the closing costs. I'm buying it in as is condition. So you're not having to put any money into fixing up the house and you're not having to pay any realtor commissions or title and escrow fees. Does that sound fair? And that you're listing all of the good things that come with your offer. And I mean, if I'm somebody and someone just said, you know, that explaining the terms, all cash, I'm not having to pay any closing costs. I'm not paying any money to fix other property. Is it fair? Who's going to say no, that's unfair. Yeah. No, that's unfair. I want to pay for closing right. costs. I want right. to pay to fix up my property, you know? So that's another, um, you know, non-detrimental or a, a good use of the word fair that you can use. So let's talk about some things that you could use in replace of the word fair. Yeah. So we use a lot of the time terms win-win. Mm -hmm. So if a seller's asking for us to pay 450 and our number's really 300, We'll say, hey, look, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, at 450, or you'd say, look, we like to make win-win situations. And at 450, that would be a huge win for you. And it would not be a win for me at all. And I feel like at 200, it would be a huge win for me, but it wouldn't be fair to you. So what would be a number in between 450 and 300 that you feel would be a win-win scenario where each person's walking away with a good situation? You know, or... Um, you could use the word reasonable. Reasonable sounds a lot like fair, and it has to be used with caution. But if somebody says, hey, you know, I'll give you or uh, I'll sell my house for for 380. It's very generous of you. And if the home was in tip top shape, I feel that's quite reasonable with the repairs that I know I need to make and the situation at hand. I would only be able to offer you 310. For all of you out there who are struggling in negotiations when somebody throws out a price, that is the uh, uh, freaking textbook great way to handle that objection with sellers. So 
write that down, listen to that again, because that's a great way to navigate that price conversation with sellers without making them feel offended or without making them, uh, you know, yeah. breaking down the rapport or anything well, like when, that. When your prices are that far apart, yeah, you can't view your counterpart as the enemy. Mm-hmm. They're not the problem. The unresolved price difference is the problem, and you two are teammates to find that price. It's a huge change in mindset. I used to feel like I would be angry with a seller. Like, you're not being reasonable. You're not being fair. I could feel myself getting emotionally involved. When all of a sudden I said, wait, this person is working in their best interest. It, it to- makes total sense why they want the most price possible. Now, we're just trying to come to a conclusion on where in the middle does this make sense, right? The book says never split the difference. And I just said, where in the middle? I'm not saying that you actually have to meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. I'm just coming to a middle of understanding. And once you both have the same understanding of the situation, a price can be found. So this is a good segue into our next se- section we're talking about, excuse me, which is bargaining, um, which is a huge part of negotiations, price Absolutely. negotiations, um, whether it's in the real estate industry or not. I mean, we we bargain with other people all the time for cars, for houses, for anything that you buy. Yeah. With, with friends or family for literally... Where are you going it, to dinner? Where are we going? Anything. Literally. So in, that's an important note. I know we've said this before. This book is not only applicable to real estate or to sales or something. This should be a book that everybody reads regardless because every day is a negotiation, you know, whatever you're coming across, right? So side note right there. So let's talk about bargaining. Um, we were just talking about this yesterday when we were um, training Colin. Training Colin, which is in standard negotiating – we the first thing we have here is we want to anchor we we want an anchor point we want to anchor ourselves anchor our conversation anchor the seller to what an emotional price let's talk about what the traditional school of thought was okay the traditional school of thought is tit for tat you know you start at 50 i start at 100 we split the difference at 75 if you do it like that every time neither person gets a deal ever the great example would be, and this is just shows non-monetary negotiation, but you have a husband and wife. Husband wants to wear brown shoes, and the wife wants him to wear black shoes with his outfit. And they can't decide which one looks better, so they meet in the middle. He wears one brown shoe, one black shoe. It's worse than either of our other two <laughs> options. No deal is better than a bad deal. Yeah. So to not have a bad deal, to not always just split the middle – you know, all of a sudden your your flips are never making profit, you're overpaying, market shifts, whatever it is, and you're out of business. You need to understand these concepts. So emotional anchoring. Can you do you want to explain what that is, Cade? It's the first step of bargaining. So anchoring someone's emotions and let me know if you want to add or change any of this. Anchoring somebody's emotions is if you've got a seller who is kind of all over the place or in distress or their emotions are all over the place, any conversation that you have will, will most likely be irrational, right? If the person, just think of it in the heat of an argument, if my emotions are, fl- are flooding high and yours, your emotions are flooding high, 
the conversation is not going to be productive. Logical. It's not going to come out to any logical conclusion. There's not going to be a good outcome, yeah. right? So being able to have e- either through you know the labeling or the calibrated questions, anchoring the person down to a level playing field to where you can have a reasonable and logical explanation, even when the other person's emotions can be running high. Yeah. Because of whatever problems with the property or in non real estate, whatever the Mm -hmm. other problem is. So the standard here is understanding that you need to keep a level head and your goal is to keep the other person level headed too. That's how you get execution on top of good negotiation. The, the first thing in bargaining and the difference between bargaining and negotiating, negotiating is the entire process. Bargaining is getting down to the brass tacks. Mm -hmm. Let the other guy go first. Half the time that you're doing this stuff, you shoot yourself in the foot when you lead with the first number as the buyer. You don't know what they're expecting, and you don't know if you're going to over-offer at the start. A great example would be if you went to a house and the seller made you say the first number, and you offered him 150 and he was willing to let go of the house for 120 well, you just gave up 30000 and yeah. you walk away with, uh, I think it's called winner's pocket. Instead of buyer's remorse, you have winner's pocket and winner's purse. And you wish you had, you had made more. All of a sudden, your deal doesn't feel good because you, you, the guy accepted your first offer. You did something wrong. Yeah. So you always try to get them to give you the first price. In order to be a good negotiator, you need to be comfortable if you ask them for the first price and they say 250 to not have your emotions spike out of the blue. Yeah. We talk about uh, first price anchoring as a punch in the face. You need to be able to take a punch and keep your cool, right? He's going to punch you in the face with the highest offer he wants. Well, he just set his limit. If you take that, if every person you talk to, you weren't able to take that punch in the face from the first price, you would never close any deals. No. Because if your emotions are running high and saying, oh, that's that's way too much. There's no way. That's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. There's no way the seller and I are going to be able to come to terms. He, he's just way too high. I'm, I'm going to go on to the next call. Nope. Lost it. You will never close a deal that way. And to real quick, to go back to, um, you know, asking you know, let, letting them give a number first. It's why in our scripts and why now it's our secondhand nature when we're having a conversation, you know, for example, you know, hey, Mr. Seller, um, you know, it sounds like you were telling me the home needs a lot of repairs. And like I told you, I'd be purchasing the home all cash. I'd be paying all the closing costs and title and escrow fees. Uh, I'd be purchasing it as is. You're not paying any realtor commissions. With all of that being said, you know, what's the lowest price you would consider? That's why we always, always, always try to get them to say it first. Now, we, by the way, we don't even give a range. Like, we don't give a price or a range no. until we've asked that like seven times. Yes. Because we have our <laughs> first person ask that three times. Mm-hmm. Our second person asks it three times. We ask it three times. Like, it just, you, it like I said at the start, the rule of threes, it's hard for them to push back three times it's yeah. human nature you start to wear down and like we were talking about there's different ways or ways to build up to asking to that question now if the first time you ask and they say well you know what really just shoot me an offer 
the next example I'm thinking of is in our follow-up call, when we're doing some comps or sometimes the uh, the lead will ask for time for them to do a little research because they don't know what the property is about, is when you hop on the phone and you start talking about comps, you know, well, hey, Mr. Mr. Seller, um, you know, I did, I did a little homework and I saw that investors in the area are paying between 100 and 120 grand for for properties in similar condition to yours. And blah, blah, blah. You kind of plant that seed, right? And then you ask the question again, you know, with with all that being said, Mr. Seller, I know we talked about the neighborhood and, um, you know, we've talked about the condition of the property a lot, you know, what what would be the lowest price you'd actually consider or and stuff like that? Before we move on, you already use the next thing that's important here. You, so first off, you labeled, you mirrored, you did everything. You, ca- you used calibrated questions to get here. They won't give you a price, or even if they do give you a price, they're setting their price point, or they're not giving you anywhere to start. Our first number that we give is a range, and you give a range, and you place it on other people. So you do your research. You figure out what other investors have been paying for houses, and then you say, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, I appreciate you want 250. I did a little research myself, and that seems to be about what fair market houses are going for when they're fixed up. What that means is that investors in the area I noticed are paying somewhere in the ballpark of about 100 and 110. Is that even a price range you would consider? And so you've given them your punch in the face back, mm-hmm. right? The key here is that if you are a good negotiator, you can del- you can take your punch without getting emotionally aroused and you also can deliver that punch in a way that is not aggressive or hurtful you maintain the rapport you've you've built empathy with these people you've become an understanding one of them right you're on the inside of what they're thinking hey look you know what i did a little research mr and mrs seller and it looks like other investors in the area are paying in the ballpark of 100 to 110,000 is that even a range you'd consider now, a lot of the times a seller, after getting hit in the face with that, who's not going to negotiate or who doesn't like to negotiate, will drop to their lowest number right there. Yeah. And I th- you made a really important point, which everybody out there, you know, that a great reminder for when you're talking with sellers is you're making somebody else the bad guy. Let's take that phrase again. You know, I did my homework and I see that other investors in the area are paying between a hundred and a hundred and ten thousand. Is that even a range you would consider? Now take that and compare it to, you know, Mr. Seller, I did my research and I'd be able to pay you between a hundred and ten and a hundred and twenty thousand. When you put the burden on somebody else and you say, it looks like other investors in the area you know, have been buying some houses in your neighborhood or, you know, are paying between 100 and 110 in the neighborhood. Is that something you'd even, you'd even consider? You're taking yourself out of the equation. You're like, hey, look, th- this is what this is other, other guys will pay you, you know, and sometimes and which is a good tool. I think I heard I've heard you use this recently that comes to mind is, you know, after saying that and, you know, they're like, no, or even before they say whatever their response is, you know, now. Uh, I don't expect you to take 110 to 120,000. You know that that's not what I'm saying. I know your property's in a little bit better shape or XYZ, right? Um but establishing that you can continue to walk that statement off without being aggressive. You've now yeah. anchored them regardless of what whether they accept that or not. Yeah. 
because now they know, well, shit, like I can't go, you know, just blow this out at 250 and expect to get that. I'm really going to be in the ones you've because now if they really wanted 250 and they hear 110, one to 100, they're going to say, well, I would be a I would be a dog if I got 170. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd be crushing the other guys. And that's what people really want to feel. They want to feel like they, you know, they did well. Be, yeah. It's that's something we should talk about. But, you know, that's important. You know, because even if they sell for a lower price, a lot of these people didn't have an, a reason for the specific price. It's an emotional price. If you come with something like a range, they're going to drop. Then once you give that range and they say, no, I, I wouldn't even consider 100 to 110. My absolute lowest I will take is 160. Well, you just got them down $90,000 in one question. Mm-hmm. Great, Mr. Seller. Well, 160 is much closer to what I would be able to pay than 250. Now, if I were to buy the home, make sure that everything was done easily, I pay for all the closing costs, commissions, uh, anything of that sort. You don't even have to go back to the house after this conversation. Realistically, what would be the lowest price you would consider? I didn't give a number back. I labeled a non-monetary term, which is the ease of sale. That's Mm -hmm. what an investor is providing. And then I asked him for another question or for another price. He's negotiating against himself. Now, well, I just came down to 160. I'm not going to come down to 110. Look, if you guys make this easy, I don't have to do anything else. I would take 145. That's it. Okay, you just went down $105,000. Now, it's up to you to decide, can I make that price? Now, let's use let's build off that. So, they say 145. You end the conversation with the seller with, you know, okay, that that's very generous of you, Mr. Seller. Um, 145 sounds like it's definitely closer to something I can work with. Let me give my contractors a call. Let me see if I can budge them on their quote a little Sharpen bit. Sharpen my pencil is a, a term we say a lot. I love sharpening my pencil. And, you know, let me give you a call back later today or tomorrow or whenever it is. Right? Boom. The next thing that the book talks about, which I know I've used on one of my on several of my contracts to get signed. All of my sales are this. Are with this is when you come back to them is using an odd number a non-rounded number number. so for example we're using the 145 you call back mr seller and say you know hey mr seller you know hope your day is going well um you know i sharpened my pencil a little bit you know i roughed up my contractors beat them down on their quote and the absolute best i can do is a hundred and thirty nine thousand seven hundred thirty five dollars and thirteen cents Wow. Okay. It sounds like you have a really specific number. Yeah. You know, um, as we know, the materials and and everything right now, everything's going out the roof. But uh, my contractors, uh, I went back to them. You know, I roughed them up a little bit. And, you know, Mr. Seller, in talking with you, I really want to put this deal together. How Uh, can we make that work? How can we make that work? I could see you're already going down the route (laughs) of talking too much. Yeah. Right. So whenever we, just a reminder, Cade and I are not like we're not not flaw uh, <coughs> proof we are not flawless <laughs> yeah i don't mean to point it out but you notice how even just now you were yeah. talking i think if you came to him and said mr seller thank you for coming down that's very generous of you to offer 145 i was able to come up on my price 
I know we started and talked about that 100 to 110 range. Mm-hmm. I The best offer I could make you is 139, 738, and 13 cents. How can we make that work? I don't even know if you have to really explain it. After you say that I've sharpened my pencil, maybe before you say, I, I, you know, I sharpened my pencil, I beat down the contractor a little bit, and I was able to get my numbers up. I don't know if you even want to say anymore. Yeah. That's a good point. Because now we ask a calibrated question. How can we do that? How can we make that work? How can we put a deal together? How can we get this done? And then, bang. So, I mean, now we're talking about five grand, right? Either way, five grand doesn't make or break a deal for Uh either person. Yeah. At the worst case scenario, you've made a statement that this is your highest price. If you do come up, you need to say, look, I'm willing to cut out of my profit to make this deal work. If I can do that, how would, or what would be the best way for me to send you the contract for signature? Guaranteed execution. Yeah. Now, Rarely. I'm trying. I'm trying to find out because we've been jumping up and down here in this bargaining section a little bit. Um, let's talk about the Ackerman model real quick. Now, the book goes into this model called the Ackerman model. We were just talking about this yesterday, in that we typically don't really use it i've never used it it requires pre-calculation and but we still wanted to talk about it just so people understand it just because depending on the industry or you know depending on how you apply it i mean it we know that there's been success doing it we just have not used it we use a style of it we we use a subliminal like idea but we don't use the numbers so the first step in the ackerman model it's a bargaining model for just tick tit for tat. Mm-hmm. And you start by picking a price that's your 100% price. This is the price you want to buy the house at four. Your, your We're max use round price. numbers. Yeah, 100,000. Okay. Now, the number you want to start at, obviously in negotiating, right? And never splitting the difference, meeting in the middle. Very rarely is your very first number you're going to throw out the offer the seller is going to accept, right? Now, I've had cases where that's true but typically 99% of the time the number you throw out the seller is not going to want it they're going to want to negotiate and get the highest price they can for their home so if your max allowable offer is a hundred thousand there is no way you can go above a hundred thousand you're not going to start at a hundred thousand under the Ackerman model you're going to start at 65% of that price so you're going to start you're negotiating with the seller at 65,000 so this you start by asking them for a price. Of course. And they say, I'll sell it to you for one forty five. You're gonna that's their anchor. Yeah. Now you're gonna anchor them with sixty five. Mm-hmm. Now what? Now sixty five, you know, if someone's at one forty and you're coming to them at sixty five. Less than half. Less than half. You know, it some people aren't even gonna think you're gonna be able to put a deal together that way, right? If you're that far off at one forty. Now you go through the whole spiel that we've gone through this whole ep- this whole episode, right? Which is labeling, you know, mirroring, asking the open ended, calibrated questions, um, you know, the non monetary terms of the deal. And seller comes down, and he's now at one fifteen. Now the Ackerman model says you started at sixty five percent of your target price, which is a hundred. Obviously, the deal wasn't being able to get done. So, so now make up. make an incremental jump to 85% Which of is your a, MAL. It's a 20% jump. Mm-hmm. 
So we're so going from 65 to 85. Yep. So your gap is now 85 to 115. So uh-huh. 30,000. Yep. A lot different. A lot different. He might now say, nope, I'm at 115. Bad practice. If you can't get him to change his price, you can say, look, the best I can do is 95% of your price. So now your first jump was 20%. Your next jump is 10%, half of that. Mm-hmm. So now I can do 95000 not a penny more. Now they're going to say, fine. You, If you can do 110, I will do it. Your final jump, and again, this is not the right way of bargaining. This is if you get stuck in just haggling. And haggling back and forth with the seller. Absolutely. You say, look, my best price, my absolute best price is 100000 And I'll even buy you your favorite bottle of wine. By throwing in a non-monetary thing uh, or throwing in that you'll, uh, you know, you'll give him a ticket to Disneyland that you guys were talking about or whatever, right? You know, maybe he's into uh, golf. Golf. We'll and, go do it. We'll get, I'll pay you for your round of golf. You and I can go out and play around a golf once we do the deal. A non-monetary thing. They feel like they've gotten you. They've squeezed you for every penny. Mm-hmm. They drop to 100 and you're done. Boom. So that's only if you get really stuck in haggling. I've never had to use the Ackerman model. A way that we use it is after we've run our numbers, we'll look and see what other investors are paying. And sometimes we'll anchor using the same thought process. So if our number is 125, we'll say, look, after doing our research, we've seen that the other investors in the area are paying in the ballpark of 110 to 115. Is that even something you consider? Then... We know that our offer needs to be closer to 125. We're not starting 65% of our offer price, but we're so confident that we know what we're doing with negotiation and fact finding that we can get them to 125 and come up 10 grand or 15 grand and they'll come down the rest. My thought at least is the issue with using a set model like that is Every person you're talking to, everybody is different. Everybody's got their own personalities, their stories, their situations. It's very, very hard in any in anything to use a set model or a set method and make it work with everybody. That's where the rapport building comes in and you being able to understand the other person on the end of the phone or the other person in the conversation. And for example, let's say this Ackerman model the bargaining and negotiating. I work with a seller. I've bought a couple of his properties here in town where the num- we he's no bullshit. We'll go to the property and he'll tell me his bare minimum number. And I know with him, there's absolutely zero negotiating. It's either that number or it's done. So I'm not going to go through and try and do 65, 85, or even try and haggle him a but little bit. He also bit. has a much more realistic price than most sellers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that comes down to, again, understanding the seller, the rapport, and the relationship you've built with the other person. I wanted to touch on something, too, before we move off of this. Because this is going to be a longer podcast. So I just want to make sure we cover it. When we talk about no-based questions, they're important for you to know how to say no without saying no. So we we actively seek no questions from time to time. Mm -hmm. But when you get asked a question or you're given a price... You have to be, you have to disagree without being disagreeable. So, Cade, one of the things that we can do that we've done in the past is we'll say, that's a very generous offer. 
I can't make that work. I can offer you 110 to 115. How can we make this work? You have to be able to not say the word no because people respond to no the same way that you are currently responding to no before training yeah. how to listen for it. So you need to be able to say that's very generous of you. I'm sorry, I just can't do that. Using words like very generous, that's, that's very kind of you, I really appreciate that. And then the phrase, I'm sorry, or I apologize. And then I can't do that. You don't have to give an explanation. You just say, I can't do that. And another variation of that we use is, you know, hey, Mr. Seller, you know, that's very generous of you. Uh, that offer was very generous of you. If I did agree to that, you know, it that would definitely be a win for you. You know, you'd be getting over market value for the property. Um, you know, if I were you, that would I would be ecstatic, right? But you know, I always pride myself in being open and honest. And me as an investor, it would not be a win for me if I was able to pay that price. You know, how can we proceed or how you know something like that using what would the win-win again under that that you would consider if I paid for all this, blah, blah, blah. Boom. All right. We talked about the what and how questions. We talked about briefly why is a tricky one. Uh-huh. Why is particularly tricky because why is a defensive. It makes people defend themselves. If you come into me and you say, oh, I did this. I say, why did you do that? <laughs> Even though I said, oh, why would you do that? Any inflection with why can come off as making you be defensive. So we always talk about you don't use why. You use what encouraged you to, what inspired you to, what made you. When you ask why questions, you need to get them to defend you. Why didn't you accept the other offer? Why would you work with somebody like me instead of sell it on the open market? Uh, why wouldn't you hold on to the house? You need to get them to start explaining why they would work with you. Mm -hmm. Don't ask them questions like, why would you hold on to the house? Yeah. Well, because I'm going to make great rental and the market's <laughs> going to go up. And why wouldn't you hold on to the house? Well, because honestly, I don't really want to be a renter or a landlord anymore. And I'd rather sell the house and make a little money and be done. Let's use that example you just said, which I'm trying to backtrack. You said if somebody doesn't want to sell their property because they want to keep making their rental income or if somebody a seller comes to you and says you know tenant just moved out you know I'm really not sure what I want to do with the property yet you know I haven't started anything I don't know if I'm gonna put another tenant in there um, or X, or XYZ avoiding the why question you know you know what what would make you want to sell you know what, what would make you put you know, the 10 or 15 grand in there to get another tenant. Oh, you know, because I, I've been a landlord. I love the rental income when somebody was in there or something like that. You're fact finding. Either yeah. you're going to find out that they don't want to have the house or you're going to find out they do and that the timing is not right. And you mm -hmm. can move on to the next person who does want to sell. So that's a, That's the brief synopsis on why. Yeah. Now more juicy stuff here. Yeah. Uh, the illusion of control. With the illusions of control, we've talked about this a little bit in, you know, giving the other person you're talking about the illusion that they are in control and controlling the conversation, right? Now, think of it 
as if you were getting a call from a telemarketer or you were picking up a cold call, right? Typically, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be irritated. You're going to be X, Y, Z. As the per, as an investor or as the person on the other end of the phone, through building rapport, we want the other person to feel like they are in control of the situation. Now, we've talked about various ways to do that, one of which is asking those open-ended, calibrated questions, mm-hmm. right? You know, catch me up to speed on the property. You're guiding the conversation. You're really controlling the conversation. But by asking that open-ended, calibrated question, you know, you know, hey, Mr. Seller, um, catch me up to speed on the property. Now the seller is going to go into the whole life story <laughs> of the property and why it is the way it is, why he's in the situation it is. Right. And li- if I'm the seller and I'm being able to explain and tell you everything about the property, I'm going to feel like I have the illusion that I'm in control of the conversation. Yeah. Right or wrong. Right. So the key here is understanding that when people feel like they're part of the solution, they implement things better. When they feel like they're part of the conversation, they're more engaged. Your job is to engage people on the call, find information, solve problems. One of the best questions that you can ask is how can we solve that or how can we make this work? And one of, let, let's use an example, which we talked about earlier, is let's say you're talking with a seller, right? And the property is tenant occupied. The tenants are not paying. Obviously, the seller is in a distressed position. They're having to make the mortgage payment. They're not getting any rent. People are living in their house for free. And like you said, it's not about you and the other person being on polar opposites. It's about you guys being on a team. So phrasing it in a way, you know, Mr. Seller, you know, it seems it, it sounds like that is really frustrating for you label. How can we solve this problem with the unpaying tenants? You put by doing that, by labeling and doing that, and asking how we can solve the problem, you not only bring the seller onto your team, but you make the other person, the other entity, the enemy or the counterpart instead of it being head-to-head like this with you and the seller. Right. Right? And also, by allowing them to talk out loud and provide solutions, they might even come up with a better solution than what you would have provided. They know the situation. You understand real estate. Your job is to bring solutions, but... Maybe they say, oh, I know that, you know, the tenant's my sister and she just needs the place to go. Maybe we could, uh, you know, put her up in my house for a few weeks and give her an opportunity. Just give her some cash. Well, great. So we've got a couple things to wrap up here. We've already emphasized multiple times the importance of calibrated questions, making your counterpart feel like they're in control of the conversation. Um, you know, let's talk about guaranteed execution, guaranteeing that, you know, the best way to guarantee that the deal is going to get executed, you're going to get the deal done. So you've mentioned the rule of threes, right? Yeah. Which is it's hard to fake a yes or it's hard for a seller to kind of dodge something if you're asked, if you ask it three times. Right. If you say, are you ready to sign? And they say yes. And it's a counterfeit yes. And then you say, great, I'm going to have to get this all set up. Uh, is it best for me to bring this back over? Yes. I mean, like the more that they the more that they say yes and the more they agree to something, the more difficult it is for them to then go against their word. Absolutely. So we've got the rule of threes. We've got another rule here that the books talk talks about that we wanted to mention, which is the seven thirty-eight fifty-five percent rule. A little bit of a mouthful mouthful, excuse me, but let's kind of break down what each of those percentages are. It's all known stuff. Yeah. It talks about 
7% of what people are communicating is the words that they say. 33% is how they say it, tonal inflection, things of that sort. And then 55% is facial and body language, like the face that they make when you ask a question. It seems like there was some hesitation, you know, things like that. When you see that like, oh, you know, they scowled when you brought up the tenant or the neighbor, maybe there's something there. Well, you got to figure that out. Why, you know, what's your relationship like with the, with the neighbor continuing that route? This is why, especially keep this in mind, 90, a huge portion of your communication, at least in this industry before meeting the seller, obviously in person is going to be over the phone. So this body language and face is going to be out of the question, which makes your tone of voice that much more important on the phone one starting off with being friendly playful you're your kind of normal voice right but then being able to mirror how the other person talks how the other person reacts your your tone of voice becomes that much right. more important over the phone and you know well let's use an example off the phone i mean if we opened and closed every episode of the podcast Thank you guys for tuning in to the Pursuit of Property podcast. We thank you for listening. So my tone is it's still the flat, same. Yeah. Well, and look at my face, right? Like I'm talking like this. I'm making a blank stare at the camera. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning into the Pursuit of Property podcast. Total different. Right. Right. And like you said, that's known information, but it's a good reminder for people to understand that the words you say are very little, although important, very yeah. little yeah. In, in regards to everything else. The last rule is interesting because it's yeah. called the Pinocchio <laughs> effect. And the idea is when Pinocchio lied, his nose got longer. Humans do the same thing. It's not your nose. It's how much you talk. <laughs> so if you're talking to a seller and then you ask them a question that seems a little fishy. So you're not working with a realtor and they go through a huge long explanation. Well, you know, my sister, her best friend was an agent. You know, I've talked to them a little bit, but the more they talk. <laughs> <laughs> the more you should have red flags going up about maybe this isn't the truth. Yeah. Not to say that long explanations are always a lie, but there is a correlation. Yeah. And the more that they talk in the third person, uh, you know, they, we, them, uh, that would be people who are talking about other people making decisions. Usually they're the decision maker. Yeah. The more that they emphasize, oh, I, me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be somebody who's overemphasizing their position, and maybe there's somebody behind them. Absolutely. Examples would be if you're talking to somebody, well, my wife needs to really make a lot of this. Well, yes, the wife needs to be involved, but that's a cop-out. You know, that's not really why you want to not take my price. Mm -hmm. Hey, Mr. Seller, sometimes when people say that, uh, I understand that we need to make sure the wife's on board. I agree with that myself. Uh, sometimes they say that because they don't feel comfortable with the price or maybe there's something terms or they don't know something and they want to learn more. Is it any of those? So just keep in mind if they push the information off of them or if they go for a long period of time, sometimes they're being deceitful. And the last thing that we've got on here, which is something we talked about, I think it was our episode that we published either last week. Um, no, not last week. This a couple weeks ago now was how to handle your first appointment. Yes. And we went through, we used kind of some of Pace Morby's uh, episode of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Yeah. And it's something called Black Swans. You mentioned one of them, 
as a way to to draw it out, which was, you know, what did your realtor say about the property? Mm-hmm. Many times, if you don't ask, you know, open calibrated questions or, you know, build that rapport with the seller, there's going to be critically important details to the deal that may not pop up until it's too late. Yeah. Like, for example, if there's a realtor involved or if there's an attorney involved and the attorney has to has to approve the price that mm-hmm. you're doing, that changes the whole navigation and the whole guide of the conversation in the deal. Or the tenants or their family. Or the tenants or, or their family. There's a lot of things. <laughs> the rule, the reason why it's called black swan was because way back when they used to only think there was only white swans. So they always lived with the expectation that the next swan they'd see would be white until one day a black swan popped up and it changed how everybody thought about what they could expect next. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're in negotiations, you can have hypotheses about what the situation is. You can't have any prejudice or think any matter of fact. We find out all the time that things don't make sense. An example would be I was negotiating a deal uh, for some land for a listing. And I kept asking like, well, what's the neighbor going to pay? Because the neighbor and she had a relationship and she kept saying she didn't want to sell to the neighbor. Neighbor was her brother. And the brother was taking advantage of her. She felt her brother was taking advantage of her. Black swan. Whenever you go into a negotiation, you need to think about the fact that there's three black swans at a minimum on the other side. That if you were to know... It would change the entire conversation. And sometimes, most of the time, the seller doesn't even know that it's critically important to know. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask calibrated questions to get that information out. Yeah, that's a huge point. I think when sellers not even knowing that it's a relevant detail, but for you can be huge mm-hmm. or can be, you know, a make or break for the deal, right? Like if the, you know, a sibling is a licensed agent. <laughs> to right. the seller and they don't bring that up until you've spent 10 plus hours negotiating, going to see the property. You finally come to, a, to an agreement and then the seller goes, you know, I think my sister's uh, you know, I just talked to her. I think she's actually going to list the property on the open market. If you had, if you had just asked the simple question, what is, what did your realtor say about the property on the first conversation? It would have saved you all those 10 hours. Right. Yep. All right. This well, has been a long podcast. Yeah. We really try to break down a lot of this. Negotiation is one of our favorite topics. We knew that we could talk forever on this. Yeah. Um, at the end here, we've had to kind of speed it up a little <laughs> or else we'd have a three-hour podcast. I know. Um, For all you guys out there, we showed the side of the book, but here is the cover. Never split the difference. Negotiating as if your life depends on it by Chris Voss. We're going to actually be putting the link to this book on our descriptions. Yep. So if you're looking to buy it, Audible is a great way to listen to it or on Amazon to listen or to read it. And we recommend that you review this every time you're going on an appointment just to kind of freshen it up and make sure that you're still tip top shape. Treat yourself like anything else. Maintain, maintain, increase, educate, and go from there. And what we're also going to do real quick to wrap up is we've done two book episodes so far, um, two really heavily influential books. Um, what we're going to do is also compile a list. It's going to be in our Instagram bio link. Um, it'll have all the books that we talk about the links to the books and also the relative, um, or the respective podcast episode where we talk about it. Just yep. so you guys have it for reference. Cause we get asked all the time. What books do you recommend? Yeah. Boom. It'll have this all there. 
Awesome, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Pursuit of Property podcast. Cade and I cannot thank you guys enough for listening for the third year straight. We uh, are really excited for our upcoming episodes, and we have some that we've already recorded that are going to be coming out with some pretty influential people on mindset and motivation. So stay tuned for that, and thank you guys so much. Thanks, guys.